Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Mental Golf Show. As always, I'm your host, Josh Nichols. And on today's episode, I have another very special guest. You may not have heard of him. He doesn't make himself super public, but his name is Dr. Raymond Pryor. I discovered Dr. Pryor from the Be The Right Club Today podcast with Hal Sutton. Um, it's, it's a it's a great podcast. They have a ton of great guests on it, and they ask great, engaging questions. I recommend that podcast uh, to anybody, uh, but it's specifically Dr. Pryor's episode. Uh, it was such a good episode. It was inspiring to me. I learned so much from it. So once I heard it, I said, I've got to get that guy on the Mental Golf Show. So here we are. I've got him today. And if you heard the Lou Stagner podcast about the neuroscience of the mental game, at the beginning of that one, I said, this is one of my favorite conversations I've had yet. Well, this today's episode might challenge that statement. This conversation with Dr. Pryor, um, it's, a, it's a long one. It's a marathon episode. Uh, we thought about breaking up into two, but I, I said, you know what? I, I just want to like give, give all this information all at once. I don't want to string it out. It's such a good conversation. Dr. Pryor is so smart. You can tell he he brings his stuff. He he knows what he's doing, and you can tell he cares so much uh, about getting the right message across, not just telling people, you know, just be present or just uh, just don't be anxious or just go through your process. That that's all surface level to uh, in, in the way Dr. Pryor would say it. And the more I hear him talk about it and the more I learn myself, the more I start to agree with him. I've learned so much from him already. He's been, he's been awesome. Okay, enough blabbering about him. We're going to get into this long episode. Uh, I really recommend you take notes. I, I'm starting to do more of that myself in reading and listening to things is taking notes uh, on, on what stands out to me as important, what, what really sticks out to me as, um, as helpful advice that can apply directly to what I do, whether it's coaching or golf itself. So I, I definitely recommend you do that. But if nothing else, just listen and let it let the let the words wash over your ears. <laughs> okay, let's get into this episode with Dr. Pryor. Yeah, just introduce yourself, kind of give give the history of the quick one or two minute. Sure. My name is Raymond Pryor. I am a performance consultant, uh, which means I provide um performance psychology services, we might call it mental training services to athletes uh, and non-athlete performers in a variety of different fields uh, and performance realms. One of those happens to be a lot of golfers, particularly kind of elite amateur college and professional golfers. Um, And this is year 12 for me of of doing that work. That's awesome. Yeah. uh, I was wondering how, how like, into like into the golf sphere you were and it sounds like you're pretty heavily is would you say that that's the bulk of what you do or do you do you spread out pretty evenly it's a pretty good chunk uh, i think right now um golf makes up about 50 percent of my clients then um kind of spread out over tennis and then in non-sport performance also um like actors and actresses, singer-songwriters, and kind of the pop star field a little bit as well. I do work with athletes who are on team sports, but I work with them individually. My expertise is kind of human individual psychology, so leadership and team development and stuff like that is 
not really my area of expertise. So I leave that to people who are, are really good at it. And there are some people who are very good at it. So if you're talking about more kind of what um, gets people performing in groups, well, you know, you can take the idea of like it, get the flock all flying together. Well, my uh, expertise is like, how come this bird isn't necessarily flying in the way that it wants to fly, which when we do that, typically we, we fly together. So I focus on the birds uh, and let the people who are really good at focusing on the flock do that stuff. Gotcha. Okay. Bird performance consultant. I'll make sure and write that down. Right. Okay. Right in there. All right, cool. So, so you said it's been 12 years. How did you get to year one and then kind of how have you gone over this over these 12 years to get to where you are, to get to be coaching, I'm assuming better and better players. Yeah. Uh, good question. Okay. So I will say, I think the, it kind of started, I was uh, an athlete growing up. Um, I was a pretty elite level soccer player uh, in and out of kind of the U S uh, Olympic development systems played a little bit in college. And in college I was um, on the bench, sir. I guess, resting an injury. And while doing that, asking myself a lot of questions like, why is it that this guy on my team who is just a freak of an athlete doesn't really play very well when it counts? And how is it that this guy on our team who kind of isn't a very good soccer player and kind of out of shape in a sport where you kind of need to be in shape, like he plays well all the time. And knowing you know, having grown up, you know, you got to be focused and confidence is important. And, and, but it's like, well, why isn't this guy more focused or confident? And why is this guy always focused and confident? At the same time, I was taking abnormal psychology class uh, in college, just kind of as an elective. And abnormal psychology is this Rolodex of, you know, clinical disorders, the criteria for, um, diagnosis, the treatment options, the population frequencies, et cetera, et cetera. And then just at the end of class, the teacher mentioned, oh, and by the way, there are these people who are like top 1% of functioning human beings, and they think and act in ways that are so high functioning by definition, they are abnormal. And kind of those two things happening, you know, pretty close together. My thought was like, why are we not spending all of our time studying these people as much as it's important for us to help people and understand clinical psychology like why aren't we teaching you know what i came to know now is performance psychology to everybody so that we can all be more functioning and happier and more fulfilled with our lives uh that led me down a rabbit hole for a while of kind of contacting people and asking questions and um, it was actually kind of difficult, but I ended up getting connected with a couple of people who were in academia teaching what was sports psychology and then kind of researching this field called positive psychology. Positive psychology is not like positive affirmation psychology. Positive means like, let's study how people are higher functioning, happier, healthier human beings so that we can help people um, do those things. Uh, and then as my body was telling me, soccer's not in the cards for you going forward, bro. Um, I started studying psychology. So I added as a major, as an undergrad, and then I went to, um, Ithaca college to study sports psychology, um, with Greg Shelley and, and some other people in that program. And then I ended up my doctorate at West Virginia university and they have a very prominent, um, 
sports psychology program. And it was in those grad programs as part of my work. And then also me just wanting to work with athletes that I started working with athletes. Um, how I got into golf was while I was at Ithaca College long before I had any clue what I was doing. Uh, I was working with a college golfer who had reached out uh, and he was just really good. He ended up uh, the year after we started working together, we been we worked together for a long time, but uh, shortly after he won a major and he said my name on television and then that kind of opened a lot of doors in golf probably that I hadn't quite earned yet. Um, and that's how I got into golf. I hadn't started playing golf yet then, hadn't got the bug yet, but I was just really interested in the psychology of it. And uh, from there, things have uh, continued to grow. And if you and I, as I've gotten better, uh, so have most of the clients that I've worked with. But I work with people at all levels and a variety of different stuff. So um, that is kind of the chronicling of events that has led to where I am now uh, in, mm. in terms of like career. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, you, I don't know, modestly didn't say who that was. Would you feel comfortable saying who that was? No. So it, it, it's surprising to me sometimes how often people who are doing performance psychology are throwing around their clients' names and talking about their successes as if they're, um, as if they are their own. I'm not okay with that. Um, and, and I know that some people are, I'm not, uh, trying to throw them under the bus or say that it's wrong. I don't know what agreements they have with their clients. Anybody who works with me, it is a confidential uh, relationship. It is my job to help provide value to you and not the other way around. I also, you know, you know this when you're working with somebody and their psychology, to me, that is a sacred space. And everybody's entitled to the privacy of their own mind. It's not like your golf swing. When you go out with your golf swing, it's a tangible, physical, seeable thing. Our inner experience isn't. There's a level of vulnerability there that doesn't exist in other places for human beings. I don't, if, if I'm not confidential, I don't know how my clients could ever really trust me with that space. And if they can't really trust me with that space, then the value that I can provide to them is significantly hampered. Uh, and so I don't talk about who my clients are. I don't talk about them when they're not around. I don't use their names for self-promotion um, because I want them to know that when they're working with me, I am working for them and that they can understand. They can tell me anything without it ever going anywhere else. So, um, no, I don't talk about my clients. I, I, people ask, and that's okay. It's Some people think it's a necessary thing to create credibility. Um I don't, I think you're, if you do good work, it will, that will be credibility enough. And those people will talk about you and you won't have to talk about them. If that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. It's a much more organic way for it to grow. And yeah. yeah, that's hard. That takes a lot of patience. That takes a lot of, uh, belief in your own, what you're doing, right? It does, but it also just, it's still the, to me, it was the fastest way for me to build my career, even though it might've been slower than trying to use my clients' names for the reason being, again, like trust is built through vulnerability, not certainty. And so if your clients can't be vulnerable with you, they're not going to build that trust. And if they don't trust you, you can't do good work with them. So the more we kind of throw our clients' names around, not only are we doing something that they might not want us to do, but we're also delaying us being able to do the thing, the, the best work we can do for them. So um, for me, that's, that's not something that I'm willing to do. I'm working with a publisher on my book right now, and they would like me to include 
um, clients' names in the book, and it's not something that I that I'm willing to do for for that reason. Um, and that might hurt my chances of getting published with this publisher, and maybe not sell the book as well. But my client, my relationship with my clients is not something I'm ever willing to compromise and sacrifice with. That's great. That's uh, I'm I uh, I look up to that. I I aspire to be more like that for sure. Right on. Um, so I've got a like a bunch of like mental nitty gritty questions, but I, before we get there and anyone listening, I will get there. I promise. But you mentioned you, as you've improved, so have your players. How have you improved as a coach? It's kind of a self selfish question to like, how can I improve? But how have you improved? Well, I mean, part of it improved that I was just learning more while I was in graduate school. There's also just kind of the organic learning of failing and figuring out why you failed or why you didn't do a job. And when your clients get better, what allowed them to get better. So there's kind of the, just the trial and error, fail and succeed and see what happens thing that happens in any craft as you get better. Then there's the actual um, kind of structured and official studying and education and learning, you know, part of the school process and getting a doctorate in, in something that specific. Honestly, the biggest kick point for me in getting better at my job, you know, without going too much down my own story is there was a point where I actually, I finished graduate school um, and I was working with a lot of, I mean, Olympians, the players on the LPGA tour and the PGA tour and people in the NBA and the NFL, and they were all doing pretty well. And I was realizing it probably really wasn't because of the stuff I was doing with them. Um, And it wasn't that I was doing bad work, but. I was realizing that what really unlocks human ability is not this surface level psychology. And and I needed to learn more. And I spent the next, well, from that point till now, just crushing reading research and understanding as much about human psychology as I could. It is a vast ocean of research. I can promise you that. Um, And when you really dive into that and put some time into it, and I mean, reading, organizing that information, plotting it out, doing that stuff, like it's real investigative research type reading, um, you find out there aren't very many areas that really unlock human ability and they're all interrelated, but you have to get into them at a level deep enough that it actually changes the parts of our psychology that unlock the stuff on the surface, right? For example, something like confidence, the surface level psychology approach of confidence is you got to trust, just trust your swing, be confident, like this kind of like, well, whatever the thing that I'm not doing, just tell me to do the opposite stuff. And then these kind of distraction and kind of quote unquote mental skills on the top to be able to do that, like having keywords or, you know, um, something of that nature. And if you find out really about how our brain works, like you realize like that stuff doesn't work very well what you have to actually do is address the the thoughts and the core beliefs underneath that are creating or not creating stable confidence and understand what sources those actually come from um and when i really dove into that stuff and really got into it i started to figure out like oh this is where it actually comes from and when i started to do that i got a lot better at my job my clients also got better not necessarily faster but more sustainably, which again is still the fastest route to more sustainable um, growth and, and success and being able to perform under pressure. Uh, and I don't want to make it sound like it's easy, 
it's some of it's pretty simple, but it isn't easy. Uh, they got a whole lot better and, um, not just them getting better, but also, you know, your client, uh, pool grows when that happens as well. So the way I got better is I did the work. Mm. Um, and by the way, a doctoral level of understand, uh, just having a doctorate in performance psychology, if you really want to get to the stuff is probably not enough. Like you got to be a lifelong learner. And I'm not saying you need a doctorate, but you've got to go beyond a doctoral level of understanding. Like you think about like some of the swing coaches I see on, on the range week to week, like the level of understanding and expertise they have on the golf swing or the putting stroke is beyond doctoral, even though they don't necessarily have doctorates in it. That's the type of stuff that if we're going to be providing psychological services or mental training to performers, whether it's golf or not, that's the standard mm. in my opinion. Yeah. So Googling how to have a growth mindset and reading the top article by Carol Dweck is not enough. <laughs> no, I mean, Carol, by the way, that's a, that go, that is psychology below the surface a growth mindset. Cause that is a core belief about where your ability comes from and how it's developed. You, it's a really important for everybody to understand that would be required reading if, if I was you know president for a day. But just having understanding of what it is, not enough. You got to understand, first of all, where it comes from, how it's developed, how to change it. And also a couple of other related things, because the core belief about where your ability comes from is a core belief. So not only do you need to understand that core belief, you got to understand how core beliefs are also developed and changed. So just understand, hey, you, hey, you got to have a growth mindset. Okay. Well, if you've got somebody who's just crazy talented and has never had to actually work to develop their talent and then therefore never works to have to develop that belief, the idea that you're going to go just just believe that your uh, ability comes from hard work and effort over time and not because you're just blessed with some magic wand. That's a that's a big leap for a lot of people. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's that's good. Uh, Again, aspirational for me. You're 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 spewing truth. This is good early on. <laughs> we'll we'll get into some some actual mental questions that are coaching related like you as a coach to players, how would you address this situation? Um I I don't want it to make it like you're a circus monkey that I'm saying give me answer. It's not like that, but if you are approached by players in certain situations and they they come to you with this maybe surface level issue, how do you dig deeper to get at the root of it? And that's what I want to know. Okay. Sure. Yeah, I'll do my best. No problem. Sure. So, so the way I discovered you was from the Be the Right Club Today podcast. Uh, I'm assuming several, you know, dozens of or hundreds of people discovered you that way, maybe even thousands, because it was amazing. And um, I think a lot of people echoed Hal's, um, I don't know, like he his awe for what you were saying. It was just awesome. It was awesome. So I hope you've got a lot of good feedback from that one, but it, uh, you deserved it if you did. Yeah, it's been a nice um, a little, like a lot of people have reached out on Twitter and, and via email. And I think um, one of the things that you said, and, and it was awesome to talk with those guys. And I think what Hal, what happened for Hal and what happened for a lot of listeners was I was able to articulate something that they were directly experiencing in a way that either helped them understand it better or took, you know, kind of an aha moment. Aha moment happens for us as human beings. Like we think it's kind of this mysterious thing. It's kind of not. We learn in two different ways, like especially behaviors, including mental behaviors, which is 
There's this um, declarative learning, which is another way of saying conceptual learning. I understand something as an idea and as a concept. And then we also understand things like procedurally, which is a fancy way of saying through our direct experiences, like I have experienced this. And they don't always match up at the same time. And so when maybe you understand something conceptually and then you actually experience it, you go, oh, aha, there it is. Or you have done something directly for a long time, but you haven't been really able to make words of the concepts behind it. Then if those click in, then again, it's kind of this aha moment, like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. And I think that's kind of what happened for Hal and a couple of people. And that's great. And that's, again, if you go below the surface to understanding, like, what are the actual mechanisms going on underneath? And I can put meaningful words behind them. You get those two things to click. And when those two things click, that's when you start to get um, understanding and wisdom and then more sustainable change, or at least the for sustainable change. So it was awesome that Hal was able to put those together. We had a great conversation and a lot of people got that. And that's less on me being a genius and more just me knowing the words that they are already experiencing. Yeah. It's like um, myself and others listening and Hal, it's like, I'm finally heard. Like someone is finally hearing my experience because he's explaining it back to me in ways I've never heard. So that's, that's awesome. We're talking like counseling and therapeutic language. You're talking about validation, right? Empathy, which is like somebody understands my experience and they put words to it. So I feel understood. That's a really important part of um, being able to communicate with people and help people get better is helping understand their efforts and, and what, what it is they're experiencing. So, yeah. Was there something specifically that stood out to you in that, that kind of uh, clicked in that way? Yeah. So the the way you talked about i think you phrased it the window of success i think is how you described it um and and i as soon as i heard it i started trying to use that in my own um sessions with players even though it could be risky now that we're talking it's like i don't maybe get at the depth of what it is but um maybe you could explain it uh what you mean by window of success or the concept surrounding it um and then what i have questions about it but yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think a really good place to start when it comes to talking about our margin of perceived success is just understanding the learning curve. So the learning curve, we are all on a learning curve in a variety of different things, but if, in this case, let's just talk it in, in terms of golf. So the learning curve goes from steep to flat for everybody. And it might have a different uh, arc to it. Some are really, really, really steep for a long time and then try to level off. Some of them level off sooner. But in essence, it's going from steep to flat, even though it is always increasing. Now, the learning curve is essentially like how good we can get at something over time and the amount of effort we have to apply to be able to do that. So as we get up, get better at something and we climb the learning curve, it takes more time and more effort to make smaller and smaller increments of progress, even if you're really good at something. So for a golfer, think about how much time and effort it takes to go from shooting 120 to 100, and then how much more time it takes to go from shooting 100 to a 90, et cetera, et cetera. And now you're talking about the best players in the world, like they're investing outrageous amounts of time and effort to go from shooting 70 to 69 like if you shoot a 69 on either tour lpga or pga and you average that throughout the year, you're going to win the Barton trophy and you're gonna have the lowest scoring average on the tours right 
Um, and so as we go up that, what that means is we actually fail more than we succeed, the better we get at something. And that is not just perceived. There's objectively speaking, like you're going to fail relative to your skill level. And so as we get better, the window for success gets smaller and smaller. You have to be better and execute better and more timely in order to get the things that we consider success. And so if we're talking about something like fear of failure or fear of success, which is fear of success is just fear of being able to maintain success. Part of the reason we fear success is because as we get up this learning curve, if we fear failure, the window is already smaller. And so if failure is something threatening to us, being successful is also threatening to us because that window for what we can tell ourselves is successful not only is it already smaller, we would then make it smaller because we have, in essence, moved farther up the learning curve, right? And so if missing that window is something I perceive as threatening, I'm going to try to keep that window as wide open as possible, right? And so below the surface, we have to look at the core beliefs and the thought patterns that are creating that fear of failure and also address some of the misconceptions about failure. Like failure is required to be successful, and if you want to climb the learning curve, more failure is required to take more successful steps, right? So if I only needed to fail a couple of times to learn how to hit a couple of different shots when I was 15, if you're 25 and on tour, you might go a year without winning a tournament just to have a couple chances to try to win. You might lose in two playoffs before you are able to pull it off. And so if we are fearful of that narrowing window and we see it as a bad thing rather than interpreting it as something that goes, I'm actually getting better and I'm getting closer to the things that are successful. It can be a really scary place for us. And so if we don't address our relationship with that window, uh, it, it can, it can be the reason that we hold ourselves back. So the, the way to make the window bigger, I mean, it, it gets smaller, like you said, as you get better, but the way to make it bigger is to address your relationship with failure. Is that basically the summation of it? Yeah, I think what's important with that is we don't try to make it bigger. You have to address your relationship with no, you're not trying to make it bigger. Now, we can interpret events as more positive or more negative, And that ratio that we perceive positive to negative events in our lives is really important. Uh, matter of fact, like vital to our health at times. But really what you're saying is when I miss this window, what does it mean to me? And it's not oh, I'll never miss this, miss this window, or I'll just move the goalposts, right? Because that would be lowering your standards. People don't typically move up the learning curve by lowering their standards, right? It's addressing when I miss this window, which I will at times and will miss it when I'm trying my best, that what does that actually mean to me? And is that perceived in a threatening way or in a way that is somewhat uncomfortable, maybe even kind of uncomfortable for a while, but not something that actually... Um, my brain or I internally perceive as a threat that is going to, to destabilize my confidence, undermine my intrinsic motivation, and kind of in the long run, be something that I'm going to be worried about in the future. Because, you know, the human brain's not that complicated. When there's something that we really think is worthy of being worried about in the future, that's going to draw our focus away. And we have a really difficult time being present. So it's not trying to change the window. It's making sure that your relationship with when you change, when you miss that window, isn't something that is um, derailing, right? It can still be a positive event. And so here we're talking about like the fixed mindset. 
the number one fear of a fixed mindset is if I give my very best effort and I still miss this window, the threat to them is it means I'm not what I think I am, which is special or talented or gifted or and fill in whatever you know fixed trait you put in there. That's a really threatening proposition for somebody who has been given evidence their entire life to support that idea. And then all of a sudden, as they get better and better, and they reach the point on the learning curve where their current ability is not enough to move them forward, they're going to miss that window. And then when they tell themselves, well, I guess I'm never supposed to hit this window ever again, that's a pretty threatening proposition for anybody. And so if we don't address that, and that would be the relationship with the window, um, you're in trouble. And telling yourself that the window is wide open and it will always be wide open has no credibility to it because it's not. Like the margin, there are actual margins for error in our performance. And the better you get and the more competitive levels you compete at, the smaller they get. That's how it works. And it's supposed to. You know, if you win a gold medal, you are the best in the world that day. If you win a major, you are the best golfer in the world that day. It, that's important for competition. We need those tiny margins for error to push human performance and to push the limits of ourselves and our sport. Trying to convince ourselves that the window is wide open is not how we typically move up the learning curve. So, so telling, telling a, telling yourself or a coach telling a player, it's just like any other tournament. It's just, it's just, uh, it's not a major. It's just another eighteen holes. It's just you, you. It's a drive. It's a five iron. It's a putter. Is that, is that false? I mean, is that not helpful? It's actually authentic to that player. I mean, imagine you were on the driving, like how many people have a difficulty going from the first, from the driving range to the first tee. And if I told you, Hey, it's still just a driver. It's not just a driver because they're actual, the consequences are different. If you win a major, your life is going to change, right? Sometimes in good ways and sometimes in not. And if you ask any golfer on the planet, you could only win one tournament. Would you rather win a major or not major? It's not the same. Now, by the way, the same things you do to play good golf will apply when you're playing in a major, especially if you can do them consistently in more difficult conditions. But telling yourself, oh, this is exactly the same as playing a practice round or whatever, it's not. And again, that's the kind of the disconnect there would be between here's my declarative understanding. My conceptual understanding is the same things happen, but my direct experience is telling me the exact opposite. And for us as human beings, we gravitate toward our direct experience for more credibility than conceptually. Like conceptually, we understand make good golf swings, golf ball will go where it goes. Directly, though, our body's telling us, don't you dare screw this up. And those are you have to address both of those. So if your direct experience is telling you this is not the same, but I just keep telling myself it's the same. There's a disconnect between those two our inner dialogue has no credibility to it. And that's where stable confidence comes from, which is a credible inner dialogue. When I tell myself it's meaningful to me, it makes sense. And I actually believe it without that. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, if that athlete actually believes that great, but asking them like, by the way, what are you feeling right now about this is probably a better starting point than trying to tell somebody, Oh, it's just the same. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's just a bear in the woods. Don't worry about it. It's what, yeah, right. It's just the saber-toothed tiger. Like, don't worry about that. Like, our brain is literally designed to worry about that. Mm. So. Well said. So then, in that case, should importance of an event change your approach, change the way you think, change the way you 
strategize, uh, change, how should an, an importance of an event change you and change your mental approach? Yeah, I think that's a little bit individualized to people. You know, for example, physically, for example, um, when athletes are preparing for a major, the preparation might be different because they're trying to make sure their body is as close to optimal as they can get for that. I think for our psychology, when we're regardless of how important the event is, the same things will allow us to play freely. They just might be more difficult to do because the tangible results of that tend to be more meaningful to us, right? So whether you're playing in a major or a practice round, if you can be grounded in the present moment more often, that's going to create space for you to play. And by the way, if you can explain in a credible but optimistic way the results of whatever might happen, like almost asking yourself, what's the worst case scenario? And am I willing to live with that? That decreases the amount of threat in the future, which gives us um, the acceptance needed to have stable confidence. And what's more difficult in that in things that are more important to us is that is harder to come by situationally, right? you're playing a practice round and the results don't matter, it's easier for us to have acceptance of the results because they aren't important to us and we don't extrapolate them to other things. When we're playing in meaningful golf tournaments or majors or whatever, and by we, I mean we, the royal we, not you and I, uh, the situation won't allow us to do that because situation we have decided these things are more important than these things. And so we have to generate that acceptance on our own that acceptance doesn't come from pretending that everything's going to work out. And by the way, I don't care about the results and I will be happy with anything. It comes from going, what's the worst case scenario? But if that's the worst case scenario, first of all, how long term is it? How widespread are those consequences? And for us, really important, how personal are they? And if we look at those and go, okay, I could live with that then that gives us the ability to go, hey, go try to go do your thing for the simple reason that we are not protecting ourselves from a future that we don't want. That is what provides us the ability to go pursue the things that we do want more freely, which is why stable confidence is built on space and acceptance, not comfort and certainty. So when you hear commentators on TV, like he's out of his comfort zone, your comfort zone is irrelevant at that point. Everybody's out of their comfort zone playing under pressure. It might be familiar to them, but it's not necessarily comfortable. And nobody has a sense of certainty that they can rely on in and out. Like the bottom line is the future is always uncertain. And we know that sometimes we get feelings of uncertainty, like, oh, I just knew I was going to make that putt. But those are fleeting. And if you need those for four days to to win a a major, your confidence is not going to be stable enough because at some point you're going to be uncomfortable and you are also going to be faced with immense uncertainty. And so um, we have to address those in ways that are credible so that when we tell ourselves, hey, go play, do your thing, it's not trying to cover up underneath going, you better not. Right. So a, a player a player comes to me and says, no, I need to play well in this event or I need to play well this summer or this semester in order to get recruited to go to college. That's they're seeing the the consequence as i mean in some ways it is pervasive and personal and all of these things how would you address that there's always some level of 
permanent, pervasive, and personal consequences to anything we do. We have to understand that if we are going to sign up to do something, there is a level of risk. There's financial risk, emotional risk, social risk, right? Some In some things, physical risk involved. And we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to accept that? For the situations that are already pretty constricting and have some longer term, more pervasive and some personal consequences, we can't pretend those don't exist if we're going to talk to ourselves credibly. The question becomes, Are if you're going to do this, so the first question is like, are you willing to risk the fact that it might not work out the way that you want to? And then the second is, if that's the case, that you have this big of margin for error with these types of consequences, how do you want to do this anyway? Do you want to do this uh, in a way that's going to give you the best chance of doing it and probably make it a relatively enjoyable experience? Because playing golf freely, even if we don't get the results we want, is still enjoyable. It might not be maximum enjoyment if we don't get the result we want, still a really fulfilling and empowering experience. And so athletes, like I'm working with a bunch of Olympians, Winter Olympics, like they literally, they've been training for years, some of them for like 30 seconds, it's over. And so if the window to be quote unquote successful, however you define it, is 30 seconds after eight to four years of training, and that's the window, that small, how do you want to do it in that window? Do you want to be worried about what's going to happen at the end of it? Do you want to be grounded in it? Like, how do you actually want to do that knowing that you cannot guarantee the results at the end? And if we consider those questions, then we don't have to answer them during because all these kind of questions that I ask athletes aren't me being super smart. It's these are the questions that competition brings out of us, whether we want to or not. And if we address them beforehand and come to terms with them, not in a way that creates comfort, certainty, or absolute satisfaction or whatever, then we don't have to answer them while we're playing. Cause when we do it while we're playing, you know, hence like overthinking, like it's pretty difficult to play golf, having like an existential conversation with yourself about what failure means to you. I'm kind of summarizing the question is, okay, so that is the scenario. How do you want to do it anyway? Mm, that's good. More, I mean, speaking the truth to yourself, like not lying to yourself, your, your brain, you can't lie to your brain. Your brain knows what's up. Yeah. Not just our brain, but also I would just say to like, however you want to say it, maybe our soul, our essence, whatever, like confidence comes from a credible inner dialogue. So if we are lying to ourselves, I mean, we're essentially undermining our own confidence. Like imagine how much you would be confident in someone who you knew was lying to you. Doesn't work out that way. Right. Um, so it's, we have to tell ourselves the truth, but sometimes the truth is not what we want to hear. But even though the truth might hurt us sometimes, and the hurt might be some level of emotional discomfort, like, whoa, actually my odds of getting through this successfully are not as good as I wish they were. That truth can hurt. But that's what allows the truth to set you free, because when we embrace our current reality, we can deal with it better. When we lie to ourselves, that's us trying to avoid our current reality. That's a big clue for us to be like, hold on a second. A player comes to you and is wondering how to move on from a bad shot. This is like, I mean, it's super surface level. It's super symptomatic. It's, um, But it's just the most common thing I hear. Like, I, you know, in a lot of first sessions, I've heard you talk about your first session and how it's just kind of laying the groundwork, I, I'll say, what do you want? Like, what do you, what is your biggest issue mentally that you want to get over? And they're just like, I just want to be able to move on from bad shots. And I know that's like, okay, there's three layers below that, but someone comes to you and says that, 
what do you say back to them? Um, I would, I would want to hear a couple of examples about what that looks like for them and what they are experiencing in that. I'd want to know what their inner dialogue sounds like when those things happen. Um, I would also ask the question, what's keeping you from moving on from shots faster, right? Because to me, that sounds like, um, to me, that sounds like an issue with acceptance. And by issue, I mean, a lot, like a lack of acceptance about things that have happened, um, especially things we don't like, right? It's easy for us to accept things in the past that worked out for us and we feel comfortable with and we like. It's harder to do that with stuff that we don't. Um, so I would want to know a little bit about that. And then also there's probably that response is just a habit. And you'd probably below the surface really means addressing that thing as a habit. So habits are just us, you know, we learn just like every other animal on the planet, there's an event, our response to it, and then there's some type of reinforcement, positive or negative. You know, if we're talking like really basic psych terms, that's trigger, behavior, reward. And dwelling on a mistake is actually a pretty rewarding experience for us. And by rewarding, I mean, it feels good to our brain for the purpose of, yeah, for human beings, one thing that's really, really reinforcing for us is the feeling of I'm doing something, right? So instead of just sitting idly by and letting things happen to me passively, I'm stepping up, I'm doing something. In this case, if I get angry and I dwell on this mistake, that'll make me do better and not produce it again in the future. And what's really important about it is that's a really reinforcing thing. That's why people get angry. That's why they stay frustrated for a long time. It's not because they're angry people. It's because that response has been reinforced for them over and over again. Same with the harsh inner dialogue. If every time I make a mistake, I crush myself internally, I'm being reinforced by the feeling of I'm motivating myself to quote unquote do better, right? That's a very motivating feeling for human beings where we have to step back and look at that as kind of a habit and look at it mindfully is, we have to ask ourselves, one, what does it make you feel in that? Because there, here's our direct experience coming in. So first of all, we need to be aware of that habit and be able to see it as a habit. Two, what does it make me feel? Like, what's my direct experience? Because bottom line is dwelling on a, ha- on a mistake and making that a habit doesn't feel good. And the second part is we got to ask ourselves, and this is not like an intellectual exercise, like, what do you get from this? And what we get from it is, I'm now not in the present for my next shot, which makes it more difficult for me to deal with my current reality. Two, it makes me more likely to make another mistake, which means now I'm not just carrying one mistake, I'm carrying two. So I'm just increasing the load that I'm carrying from the past. It typically destabilizes confidence. It creates anxiety in the future. Like just this laundry list of stuff that like uh, not helpful for playing golf, right? And then what we have to do is be able to look at like, okay, here's what you're getting from this response and this habit. How does that relate to what you would like to play golf like? Because just telling someone don't dwell on a past event when their brain has an ingrained habit of dwelling on past events is not going to change it. Because the bottom line is their brain is getting exactly what it thinks it's getting from that response every single time. You know, the term in psychology, if we're talking neurology, is reward value. Reward value is the value that our brain thinks it's getting from a behavior. And as long as it's getting what it thinks it's getting, it's going to keep that in what's called set it and forget it mode. Set it and forget it mode is our brain goes, here's a habit. Parts of the brain that are all about like thinking rationally and clearly and creatively, you don't worry about this. I'll take care of this, the survival portions of our brain so that you can go learn other stuff. 
And so as long as it's in set it and forget it mode and your brain keeps getting the reward that it thinks it's getting from that, not going to change. You have to actually show your brain, this is what you're doing. This is what you're getting. And then how does that compare to what I want? And then at some point you have to be able to, once you have established that for your brain, provide a better option. And in this case, with dwelling on mistakes, it's most likely to be some type of better option in the form of acceptance. And what's great about acceptance is it feels a whole lot better to our brain than dwelling on stuff that has already happened. And that's important because our brain likes things that feel good. And what it does is we have to also understand beneath like accepting it is the best way to deal with it going forward, not punishing yourself for it. So again, you're almost kind of counteracting that ingrained response of, well, I'm doing something about that mistake. No, you're not. (laughs) Acceptance is this, I mean, you've heard me use this word a bunch. It is so important for us psychologically to understand acceptance. Keep in mind, acceptance doesn't mean I like it. Doesn't mean I'm satisfied with it. Doesn't necessarily mean I'm comfortable with it. Also doesn't mean that I'm resigning myself to, well, this is my fate forever. It means this is what I am currently experiencing and I'm accepting it without preference, which means I'll deal with it as is, is one of the key markers for people who are psychologically healthy and psychologically high performing. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like choosing broccoli over candy. It's not, it's not what you want, but it's going to be better for you in the long run. Totally. And by the way, there's a reason that we prefer candy to broccoli. And it's not the reason that we think the reason we prefer um, candy to broccoli is because it tastes really sweet. And for our brain, sweet equals more calories. So 10,000 years ago, when we were cave people, those calories meant more survival. So we would have taken candy as opposed to broccoli, because it would have actually helped us survive longer. But now we have to, and by the way, 10,000 years ago, if you dwelled on a mistake and it helped you not make that same mistake in the future, you survive longer. Hence why we do it. But we don't live in that world anymore. And so sometimes we have to use how our brain is designed to also show it you can thrive and not just survive. Hmm. So in the scenario of like you have a time machine and you could go back and do something, it wouldn't be like stop Hitler. It wouldn't be do this and that. It would be go teach those cavemen that their psychology is wrong and we're going to be dealing with this for thousands of years. (laughs) I don't know that I would have taught it was wrong because if you taught them it was wrong, then we wouldn't be alive. That's a good point. (laughs) Probably preferred to stop some horrible historic events because the bottom line is just because it's difficult for us with our survival style brain to be able to thrive doesn't mean we can't. In fact, if we understand it and train it, we can. I mean, humans are capable of doing amazing things. And I mean, every human being. It's just difficult for us at times because our brain is designed to keep us alive first. And that's not a bad thing. If you took out the survival portions of your brain, we would be dead very quickly. Because one, we wouldn't perceive any threat and we would do all kinds of things that are super dangerous. We get injured and dead very fast. Or we wouldn't remember similar situations and triggers that were threatening. And we would do those dangerous things over and over again until we ended up dead. So we wouldn't survive very long. We can do both. Sometimes we're just swimming against the the stream of our survival um, design. Not necessarily a bad thing. What I would, if I had a time machine though, with a lot of people, I would love to go back to the moment where that survival brain created a core belief and a habit. And then that starts to be reinforced over time. You know, even if you're thinking about just growth mindset and fixed mindset, there's a point for everybody where their current ability 
hits like the point where they can't move up the learning curve if they don't start working harder and working smarter. I would love to go back to those moments for a lot of people because which direction you take typically determines which mindset you start to develop and how it gets reinforced. If I had a time machine, I would go back to those moments, but we don't have to. We can just because it happened in the past doesn't mean we have to do it uh, in the future. If we, again, if we understand it deep enough and then also have the information to be able to do the things necessary to make change. And, and because things are habit and our brain is so can be grooved that way, you can use that for your advantage. You don't have to only reap the disadvantages of it, right? Absolutely. So just because, so we can, we form many very productive habits, but also some unproductive habits if we're defining productive and unproductive toward thriving and health, so to speak, right? But the same ways that, like, if you had a habit of dwelling on past mistakes, you can develop the habit of accepting past mistakes and it, your brain will learn it and reinforce it in the same way where that now becomes your new default setting habit. It happens for many people, myself included. In high school playing soccer, if I made a mistake, that was almost it for the day for me because all I did was, well, I can't believe I made that mistake, but da, 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 right? And a deeply reinforcing habit because if I crushed myself for that mistake and dwelled on it, I felt like I was, well, that means that's what good players do. They crush themselves for mistakes. That's the standard they have, et cetera. And if I'm telling myself by crushing myself for a mistake, that means I'm a good player. Of course, it's going to be reinforced. My new habit now for mistakes, which I'm like anyone else, make mistakes all the time, is to accept, yep, that happened. Can I learn and let go? Yep, also can do that. But that doesn't happen overnight. That comes from addressing the habit at its source and giving ourselves a better option over and over again until that becomes the default setting. And it, it takes a little time and it takes some intention to do so, but you'd be surprised how quickly we can change habits. And then the other reason it's hard to change habits is because as you're talking about like neurologically, neuroplastically, like we're, the more we do something both external or internal, physical or mental, the more it grooves pathways in our brain, like these myelinated um, neural connections that are designed to make habits faster and quicker. And we've got to be able to give enough time for those uh, neural pathways to restructure. So you've talked about self-awareness and how that's super important. It's like one of the keys and one of the starting points to, to fixing any of these things. If anyone wants to hear you talk about self-awareness, they can go to the Be The Right Club today. You can hear me talk about it. But I, what I want to hear you talk about is I kind of want to be devil's advocate. So you, you think of players like... I'll just throw him out there. Dustin Johnson. He doesn't seem super self-aware. Just our view of him. Or players like that. They just they they seem like they're just on autopilot just hitting the ball, not really giving it much self-reflection and they're just on they're just going. So it, is that an argument against self-awareness or like should we all just try to be blank inside? Is that the ideal spot? What do you think? Well, humans are all different. And I would also argue that players that look very tranquil on the outside may not be tranquil on the inside. And also, maybe even if they are, that's not an indication that there's no self-awareness. That might be an indication of immense self-awareness, right? So if you're talking Dustin Johnson, again, I don't think it's a really great idea to try to dive and assume about people's psychology. But I would bet my house that Dustin Johnson's level of self-awareness is immensely high. And one of the things that he is aware of is, I don't play good golf worrying about stuff, dwelling on stuff and overreacting. 
That is an immense level of self-awareness. And I cannot, I cannot emphasize how important self-awareness is or just awareness in general for the simple reason that on a brain level and a mind level, awareness is the first step to information processing. So if we're not aware, we can't process information we are not aware about. And also the type of awareness we bring to something, meaning kind of like, is it a judgmental awareness or is it a more accepting awareness? also determines how we process that information. Hence why mindfulness as a practice and as an understanding is so valuable because you are addressing the first step of information processing for us as human beings by being aware of it in the first place. And two, developing the type of awareness that allows us to process that information internal and external in real time in the present moment and without judgment. And, if, and that allows us not just to be present while we're actually competing. That type of awareness allows us to process the information in our habits, in our core beliefs, in our thought patterns. We call this perseverative thinking, which are these persistent thought patterns that go on to be able to be aware of the changes in our body and our sensations when we get nervous versus when we get anxious without developing that. I mean, it's really difficult to be able to perform consistently because you're basically hoping that the stars align situationally and internally for you to be able to perform well. So when I see someone like a Dustin Johnson or a Colin Morikawa and people where we go like, they're, they're just not aware. They're just hitting it. They don't care about. No, I don't think so. I would be, if Dustin Johnson told me, I just don't care. I don't even think about this stuff. I'm not aware. Like I would be like, I would be shocked. Yeah. You would lose your house. <laughs> I would lose my house. I don't know to who, but somebody would come in. <laughs> Right. Okay. So something I've, I've always been interested in is the, the mental side, the performance psychological side is, is notoriously intangible. It's hard to, it's hard to put numbers to in a lot of ways. I mean, you could, you could get EEG machines, there's bands you could put on your head, there's things like that, but just on a, on a average amateur golfer level, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to track mental game improvement, you know, in most people's minds. How, how do you think about tracking mental game improvement, like making it into a tangible statistic? Um, that's a really good question. So by the way, there are some studies happening right now where they are trying to at least put some type of metric to, and then the difference here is that we're looking at like, these are people that are doing certain what we call psychological training or mental training and people who aren't and seeing how that compares. The difference is you could develop a really robust, strong psychological framework without doing mental training. Again, it would be kind of the odds, like kind of the pachinko machine where everything just kind of to fall in line, or we can do it, um, you know, more intentionally. So difficult to measure. I think the better measures are in our direct experience. As much as I would love to say, here's mental training, here's strokes gained. Um, we're not really sure how to do that yet. But if you're telling me a player comes off the course and goes, you know what? I saved myself three strokes today because I didn't lose it when such and such happened. Those things matter. And our direct experience is, uh, is really important to that. Right now, that's our most um, Essentially, what we're looking for is, is there behavior change, right? And I don't know how you put a metric on that, but you can track that behavior change. Quite simply, you know, being present and not being present, and I'm present more often because I know how and I'm able to recognize what I'm not is a significant behavior change. Somebody 
observing a mistake, but then being able to move past it in a credible way is a significant behavior change. Somebody developing the confidence that goes, I'm not, I don't need to feel comfortable on the first tee to be able to swing freely is a significant behavior change. And you'll know it when it happens. Doesn't necessarily happen fast. It doesn't happen all the time, but it will happen more consistently and in the times that are more important when you do the work. And as much as I would love to be able to go, okay, here's my services. They're worth this many strokes gained. It's different for different people. Um, but your clients will tell you. Like, and if you're doing um, consistent reflection of your rounds and your performance, you are also going to start to see that. And then in which case then you can kind of, kind of put a metric to it. Yeah. And self-reported confidence and self-reported, you know, acceptance and presence is as good as anything. If, if they feel better, it's great. And the, and the other thing is you could track how that impacts their scores. If you, are a aspiring college golfer in high school and you go from shooting 75 to averaging 72 as you've done your mental training if that's not the only thing you know hopefully you're practicing well you got your equipment right you've been you're working on your core strategies like you know our psychology is one of the many factors in influencing our performance but all those other things are contingent upon how confidently and how present can you play and so if you do that better everything else will get better you know i had a a player that I was talking with last week where they, you know, my, I know my confidence is more stable because I feel this, I feel this, I feel this, but also I'm just making more clear decisions on the course because I'm not, I'm not making decisions out of anxiety. Right. And that's, that's a tangible change, difficult to metric, but um, not intangible, like feeling different, thinking different, making different decisions, being in a more present time frame is not intangible. It's very tangible. We can feel it directly. Mm, well said. I want to talk about perfectionism for a sec. Um, perfectionism has a negative connotation as it's it's going to cause you to over over prepare, overdo things, um, and and ca- can cause tension and, and cause all those kind of things. But there's good side of perfectionism. What do you think about perfectionism and whether it's good or bad? Yeah, perfectionism is intensely valuable on the low end of the learning curve because if you apply a little bit of effort and sometimes you know more effort and continued effort like you're going to get better so you're going to see progress as you're working toward um, as you're working as you get closer to the top of the learning curve it becomes far less valuable simply because the window for success is already small and perfectionism by definition there's none right it it can be valuable. It's super motivating. Like people who are perfectionists work really, really hard. The downside is it is almost guaranteed to create anxiety and burnout as it goes on longer. For the reason being, if I give myself zero margin for error for success and failure, the other downside of uh, perfectionism is that we tend to describe those failures as absolutes, was or wasn't. And we miss all this middle ground. So even just in terms of processing information and learning, Perfectionism limits that because we're not able to see the spaces in between as much. We get kind of blinded, like either I was perfect or I wasn't, and we don't see everything else in between. And that really limits our ability to learn. The second is as we get under pressure or playing in meaningful or competing in meaningful environments, that tiny window to be able to tell yourself is successful is an added self-imposed unnecessary sense of constriction 
that makes it harder for us to compete because it's not just, well, how do I figure out how to score? It's I need to do it and I have to be perfect doing it. Or I have to be perfect in order to do that, in which case then it essentially is guaranteed to destabilize confidence under pressure, right? So it can be really valuable in some situations, but you'll know it's past the point of diminishing returns when it starts to create anxiety, when it starts to diminish our ability to learn, and ultimately when it starts to create um, a sense of burnout. And the burnout comes from, I am always missing this tiny, tiny perceived, if not, not margin for error that I've created for myself. And when I do, I tell myself, well, that means I can't score that. Like we create these consequences from it and you don't have to do that for too long or be a psychologist to understand that then golf becomes a pretty aversive experience. And we don't do aversive experiences very long before um, it starts to create some sense of burnout. And again, overtraining and burnout are not the same thing. Overtraining is I have pushed my body and my mind to the point where they need rest and recovery. Burnout comes as a result of creating conditions between myself and my craft that I cannot meet. And I do that over and over and over and over again until it burns me out. So perfectionism on the low end, but I think um, it can be more dangerous as we get better. I don't know that I've ever met a perfectionist who is on the top part of the learning curve who isn't finding more aversive effects of perfectionism than not. I mean, in the level of acceptance we generate from perfectionism is really, really low. And if you're trying to be really good at something, acceptance is uh, invaluable, right? And again, doesn't mean we like it, doesn't mean we're comfortable with it, doesn't mean we're satisfied with it, also doesn't mean we're stuck with it forever. But when we're trying to be perfect, we, we're trying to eject ourselves from anything that is not perfect. And that takes us out of our current reality. And again, it, it disrupts all kinds of things for long-term growth and really creates constriction and breadth when we are under pressure, which are you know basically the antithesis of stable confidence. Yeah, that's that's the best I've ever heard perfectionism talked about. <laughs> nice. Uh, so I got one more kind of question, and then I want to. I got a handful of listener questions, and and then we'll we'll hit the home stretch. But uh, should mental training be mandatory? Like, should should it be first? And then the physical parts tacked on on top. Like, should you try to get the mental training as a foundation first? And then now that you're in a good place mentally, now that you understand your tendencies and what could happen, then you'll be in a better place for the physical training. What do you think about that? There are three things that we can train. We can train our body, we can train our mind, and we can train our craft. And we, if you want to be really good at something, and by the way, also enjoy it as much as possible, which doesn't mean it's always going to be enjoyable, um, all three are required, right? So this, our psychology is part of the formula. It's a really important part, again, because everything else is uh, revolving around it, but it's not the only part. I don't know that I would ever make it mandatory. One of the things I do with clients, particularly when their parents call me and ask me to work with them or like a teenager is asking me like, is this something that you want to do? And if you're asking me like on a structural fundamental level, should we be doing this more? Yes, obviously addressing our psychology. It, it improves everything else in our lives when our psychology is in a place that promotes those types of things. And it hurts everything else in our lives when it's not. However, I am an advocate of autonomy and agency, which is I get to make choices and exert influence over my life, which, by the way, is a psychological need for every human being on the planet. And when we are forced to do stuff kind of against our will, it's it's, um, it is inherently met with, with resistance, right? 
because for every parent that goes, I need you to make my kid more mentally tough. There's the kid that's like, I I don't want to do that. Right. Or when, you know, typically when you uh, work with people at really high levels, like they are very much engaged. Like I want to do this partially because I need to, in order to keep up or to get better or do whatever. Um, But I don't know that I would make it mandatory. I think making it available to people and being very welcoming about it is really um, probably the best approach right now. You know, for example, if you were working with high school players or, you know, high school aged players at your academy, you know, hey, we're going to do a a body scan mindfulness practice every Monday at this time, come on by, not required, but whatever. And then people do that because the great thing that happens as with training our body and our mind is if we're welcomed into it and we go, you know what, I'll do this because I want to, not because I have to, it's met with less resistance and that opens the chance for it to be a beneficial experience for us. And if that's the case, you know, it opens up, well, that one's pretty good. I wonder what else there could be. And it starts to open things more. Um, But I don't know that requiring it um, is really important. I think it's kind of like going to the doctor. Like you can't make people go to the doctor unless they're signing a contract that says they need a physical to be able to transfer to a certain team or be traded or whatever. Um, So I don't know that making it mandatory would help, but I think making it more available, more welcoming and better quality, more people would probably do it. Yeah. And on a, on a personal level, on a person by person basis, if you are averse to it, there's something going on there that you need to address in, in making yourself more open to the idea of it is back to the self-awareness piece. If you don't notice that you're having problems, you won't be able to fix those problems. So on a personal level, you've got to make yourself available to it there's something to be said about us just being open-minded to stuff and making sure that when we make conclusions about things, we are questioning those conclusions. Sometimes, you know, it's not uncommon that I I run across swing coaches who have in no uncertain terms said they think I'm a snake oil salesman and that, you know, psychology is not a thing and players just need to play better period. Or if they have quote unquote mental scar tissue, um, there's nothing you can do about that. Only they can handle it on their own. There's no one that can help them with that. And, they have a healthy distrust of this stuff. Some, some people do. And I don't blame them for having that healthy distrust for a couple of reasons. There's been a lot of really bad psychology offered, you know, quality of psychology services offered at in a lot of different places, right? So if the psychology is poor, the experience and the athlete are probably going to get worse. And then of course you would be like, this is a terrible thing, but also just because one experience was really bad for somebody doesn't mean that they will all. So it's, it's again, like you said, it's that self-awareness of here's the conclusion I have made about blank. And um, what is it that's causing me to make this conclusion? And, and remembering that even our core beliefs about stuff are our most central ideas about something, not necessarily the thing itself or factual. You know, one of the things that I would uh, kind of liken it to right now is there's everybody is, chasing speed and there are some people who are super resistant to it you know the game should be played this way you can't like da 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 and it's important for us to be like why do i think that way right and those are difficult questions to answer sometimes but there is a certain amount of um readiness for change that is important for us uh if we're going to do things that are addressing our psychology and not everybody's there yet and that's what I like about mental golf show listeners. They're all open-minded because they wouldn't be here if they weren't, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I've got some listener questions. Um, 
This one comes from Trey on Instagram. Uh, when going through a swing change, how do you stay patient and trust that it will work? Again, so this is kind of addressing your uh, relationship with growth and certainty. If you're making a swing change, there is no certainty that it will work the way you want it to. Um, and so addressing like really ask yourself, is it worth me making this change anyway, knowing that it might not exactly lead to what I want, but it probably will. So I would encourage him to think about what are the swing changes you're making and why, which would make it worth it for you to do that, knowing that you're not really exactly sure how it's going to work out. So you might consider those questions. And then the second part is the patience part is really important. And it's not some mystical, okay, be patient. Whatever. Patience is the fastest route to change. All these quick fixes and quick changes and surface level stuff, whether it's physical, you know, mental or other, are what happens is we do like think about it like a uh, like a fad diet. You do it, it doesn't work. Now you're still back at square one. Like the fastest way to lose weight is to be really consistent with your exercise and your diet in ways that are healthy. The fastest way to make a swing change is to take the slow road, which is I'm going to do it from a fundamental. I'm going to sequence these things in the way that it needs to be sequenced and learn them, master them before I move to the next thing, et cetera. That's the fastest way to make a swing change. It's just not as fast as we would like it to be. So it's a part of like, okay, I'm going to be patient one, because that's what's the fastest way for me to make a swing change. And the second, it makes it most likely to be successful. And it also provides us the feedback we need to be able to go, do I want to keep doing this, right? Because you might get two months into that and be like, this isn't going to do it. But unless you are patient with that and give it the due diligence, you're not going to find that out because you'll just jump from one thing to the next thing. Like impatience is plagues a lot of golfers. They'll go, oh, I did this. It didn't work out for 15 minutes. And then I jumped to something else. And then you've just done a practice session where you have not committed to something long enough to actually find out if it works. Patience is a longer road. It is still the shortest road to significant and sustainable change. That's I love that. Patience is a longer road, but it's the shortest road. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so Morgan on Instagram, how many times in a round of golf does the mind lose focus? Because four or five hours is a long time. Yeah, the number could be innumerable. Like our, our brain is designed to be able to jump from stimuli to stimuli. Right. Stimuli means just like from thing to thing, because that's what helped us stay vigilant and not get eaten by something or to find the things we needed to survive. So the idea you're going to go a round of golf and your focus isn't going to shift at times is um, an ir like a, ir a reckless standard, to be honest with you. Um, what's more important is that we start to develop the ability to recognize when it shifts and be able to bring it back to the present moment for as long as, as we need it. And by the way, to play really good golf, you do not need to be focused on the present moment for five hours. You need to be focused on the present for a minute to 30 seconds at a time as you're playing your shots. And the great news is the more we train our ability to recognize when we're not present or we're not focused on the thing that we're actually doing when we're doing it, and we refocus in that way. So we would think of this as a mindful, like a single point mindfulness practice. The more our brain starts to go, you know what, being present is really nice. And it wants to be present more often. It starts to become our default setting. doesn't mean we won't think about the past. doesn't mean we won't think about the future. doesn't mean our thoughts won't wander at times, which they will. It just means we're present more often. And when we train that ability systematically, so you're, again, this would be like a single point mindfulness practice, 
that becomes uh, more of a default setting. And then it's also not a problem if we have thoughts that are off time because we go, oh, that's me thinking about something that I'm not doing right now. Not a problem because I know how to bring myself back to the thing that I'm doing. Um, and that's really important. So there's a study from Harvard like 12 or so years ago where researchers asked people, they had a nap and they asked people, what are you thinking about? No, where are you or what are you doing? What are you thinking about? And by the way, how happy are you? And what they found was about half the time we are just in wandering thought. But when we are present, that really improves the quality of our experience. So you would that impacted how enjoyable something was more than the thing that we were actually doing. So if you were taking out the garbage, but really present with it, that experience would be better than playing golf if your mind is wandering around the whole time, right? And so ultimately, if we train ourselves to recognize when we're not present and allow ourselves to be present more often, the quality of the experience improves. And by the way, the things that we enjoy tend to draw our focus and we become more focused while we're doing them. Um, and I would say the idea that you're not going to have deviating thoughts, probably not a, a realistic expectation, but being able to ground yourself is, and that's trained through kind of a single point mindfulness practice and also just understanding the intention is if I'm going to be here, I want to be here, right? We are always physically present in the moment we're in. Sometimes it's as simple as us just being like, if I'm going to be here, like, how about be here, right? And not continually forever, because that's not going to happen, but as often as I can and um, be non-judgmental about that, meaning when our thoughts and um and our experience, inner experience kind of shifts away from that, not going, oh, shoot, you're supposed to be present, you idiot, be more present, but just being like, hey, that was me wandering over here. How about what's in front of me right now uh, starts to train us to be present more often. So a, a good day taking out trash is better than a bad day on the golf course, right? I would say a present being grounded, taking out the trash has a very high likelihood of being more enjoyable than playing golf through a, five hours of wandering thought. Got it. <laughs> That's good. Being present is also important for our competence because we're not very good at things when we are multitasking, right? So if we are in wandering thought while also trying to play golf, we're not as good at either of those tasks, which means we're going to play worse golf and be worse at wandering our thoughts. And hence why it's not very enjoyable, not just because we're in wandering thought, but also we're worse at what we're doing. And by the way, playing better golf is a lot more enjoyable than playing not as good golf. Yeah, well said. Okay, another question, two more. What can players do to unintentionally impede their progress? That's kind of vague, open-ended. There's a million things, but... The answer is a lot of things. Um, yeah, that's a loaded question. There, a lot is the answer, so I'll give a couple specifics. The first is not being grounded in the present moment. I mean, that is almost a surefire way to um, it disrupt anything, whether that's learning, long-term growth, our practice, how we actually compete and play, it disrupts our confidence. You know, even if we're thinking about flow state, you know, one of the characteristics of flow state is uh, immersion in the task at hand as it's happening, right? We, we perform better when we're on time. We also learn more efficiently when we're on time, on time being not in the past and not in the present or not in the future, but in the present, we are on time with our life and performance as it's happening. So that's one for sure. Um, really being mindful of our habits. Mindful, I use this word, is aware, but a specific type of awareness. Mindful awareness is built on three pillars, which is intention, groundedness, and acceptance. 
And that's a whole podcast for another episode. But when we bring that level of attention and awareness, we process information more efficiently. So it increases our ability to learn in the long term and also increases our ability to adapt to whatever our current um, reality is. And then understanding the foundations of building stable confidence. And again, stable confidence is not built on certainty and comfort. It's built on a sense of space and a, a sense of acceptance. And when we have those, we stay out of our own way, right? By definition, getting in your own way is I'm taking something that I'm doing, I'm making it harder than it needs to be. When our confidence is unstable, oftentimes what's happening is we are creating rules that have to happen that don't actually exist. And we are creating consequences for missing those actions or those constraints that don't actually exist either. For example, we might say, I have to hit the first fairway in order to have a good round of golf. There's no rule anywhere that says you have to hit the first fairway. By the way, it's more helpful to be in the fairway than it is anywhere else, but we don't have to. And by the way, uh, no round of golf has ever been contingent upon one single shot to start your round. So we're creating, again, constraints that don't really exist. The less, the more we're aware of when we're doing that and then remove those where we are just testing our ability against the actual constraints in front of us, the more we're staying out of our own way and the more we can be present with that and the more we can be aware of the things that we're doing that are making that more difficult or less difficult. Like uh, when we stay out of our own way, it doesn't mean the thing that we're doing gets easier. It means we're not making it harder than it actually is. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I don't know if anyone's ever said that in that way. That's awesome. Uh, you could probably answer this next one the same way you just answered that one, but what do high performers do differently than average performers? Well, that's a bit of a loaded question too. I would say also they tend to not get in their own way as much, but not all the time. Part of it is they're just really good at something and they've developed that competence. So if we think about really high performance, it is a marriage of competency and confidence, right? They don't always have, sometimes people have an immense level of competence, but not very stable confidence and vice versa, where someone had, like, if we think back to my example with my college teammates, one dude, crazy level of competence, unstable confidence. Uh, one dude, crazy stable confidence, moderately competent, right? And the kind of the ratios of those two will figure out how we perform better. But what's also really clear about high performers there are a couple of things. The first is they are more, and this is going to come as a shock to some people, they are more intrinsically motivated than they are extrinsically motivated. People who are intrinsically motivated, meaning I'm doing something simply because I want to do it and it's an enjoyable experience to me. Not that it doesn't come without frustration or um, disappointment at times, but because like I just really want to do it and get better at it, have longer, more fulfilling, and more successful careers, however they define success, as opposed to I just have this series of outcome-based goals that I'm chasing. Every human being is both intrinsically and extrinsically motivated, but if we are relying only on outcomes to motivate us, like I have to get my handicap to this level or I shoot this score or win a major, that motivator by its extrinsic nature cannot sustain the type of motivation to sustain the type of effort required to continually get better. So one of the things we do is be more intrinsically motivated. And that comes really from having less of a chokehold on goals and more of a connection to the things that make golf and getting better at it 
meaningful to you, right? So they are more intrinsically motivated. Typically, they practice way better than people who don't. And by way better, I mean they practice deliberately, which is a very systematic cycle of I have one thing that I'm working on, a metric or a sensation or something that tells me, did I actually do that? Um, accurate and timely feedback about that. I reflect on it oftentimes with the help of an expert, like a coach or an instructor. And then I rinse and repeat a lot, right? And so hence that's the patient approach to getting better. But patient approach, like just going and working hard aimlessly doesn't typically get us at a very high achieving level. The quality of our practice matters just as much as the quantity of it. So intrinsic motivation, quality of practice, and also just on a fundamental level, people who achieve at a really high level, uh, they're not leaving the third leg of performance. So they take care of their body, they take care of their mind, and they and they take care of their uh, craft. So they're learning all the strategies involved and playing. they're playing the long game, not the short game. They're not looking for quick fixes. They're looking for what's the truth, what are the real mechanisms behind it, um, what are the things that other people who are really successful doing not in a like, oh, I found some magic wand type of thing, but like really looking at what are the building blocks for sustaining success in my craft, the strategies, the training methods, the psychology, et cetera. And they're committing to those largely because they just want to get better. And by the way, want to win and, and get some really good results. And when you have that combination, um, you're going to find out how good you are. Uh, it might not be exactly what you want, but you're going to find out where the end of the learning curve is for you. Great. Okay. So I, I always ask the same question at the end of every episode. It's a silly question, but I like to hear people's answers to it because it brings out, brings out good answers. What percent of golf or high achievement in general, but this is the mental golf show. So golf, what percent of golf is mental and what percent is physical? I don't know. Um, that's a really good question. It might be 99% mental and 1% physical. It might be 1% mental and 99% physical. Both are really important. What I would just say is whether our psychology makes up 1% or 99% of our performance, it is the percent that all the other stuff is revolving around. So whether like the amount of percent that it makes up in our performance is not really relevant. What's relevant is without it, we don't open the doors to everything else. Like, let's say you have the best core strategy in the world. If you're playing golf anxiously, which comes from your psychology, you're not going to be able to implement that system. Let's say you have grooved the best swing in the world and you can hit the ball a mile and hit it straighter than I can point. If you're making tentative, scared swings and dwelling on mistakes, et cetera, it doesn't matter. I mean, it matters because it's nice to be better at something than not, but you're not going to get the most out of it. So what percent, I don't really think it matters. Um, the bottom line is it, it just, it matters. <laughs> well said. <laughs> There's no good answer to that question, but that was a great answer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Do you have anything, anything you want to say? Um, you can, you can find me on Twitter at BTS underscore mindset. BTS stands for beneath the surface, which is a phrase I use quite a bit. Um, I'm not super active on Twitter, but I will check it from time to time. So if you have questions or whatever, you can uh, let me know. Um, I have a website, www.rfpsport.com. 
And also I don't spend a ton of time on it, but you can get my information there. Um, and then if you're looking for more, I will have a book sometime later this year, tentatively entitled Golf Beneath the Surface, that will touch and go down the rabbit hole on many of the things that we just talked about today. Um, and that one, the good news is it's been getting rave reviews from kind of uh, uh, anonymous reviewers in the golf world and some of the most influential gatekeepers in the game. And um, hopefully that will be coming out soon. Awesome. Well, Dr. Pryor, thank you so much for this. This has been a marathon of an episode, maybe two. I don't know. I don't know yet, but this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Josh, thanks for having me. A lot of fun. All right, Mental Golf Show listeners, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Can you see why I said that that uh, is possibly one of my new favorite conversations? Um, I just, uh, I'm, I'm left, uh, like... My mind is kind of melting out of my ears after after all of that. It was so much, so rich. Uh, I just I felt like I just sat on the couch and ate pure dark chocolate for an hour and twenty minutes. I I hope you took notes. I hope you maybe want to listen back through again. Maybe you split it up into a couple episodes uh, or three or four commutes. I just know that these concepts are essential. Like what he's saying is absolutely essential to how you perform it's not surface level it's beneath the surface like he said it's the root causes of of habits of motivation of you know moving on from bad shots all of those are surface level it makes me realize that almost everything i've ever talked about whether on this podcast or in person with players is surface level now it I wouldn't say it's unhelpful. Maybe it has been. Maybe some of the things I, I talk to players about is unhelpful. But um, yeah, I, I'm, I, like I said, I'm just kind of left uh, speechless almost from, from all of this because it makes me want to get so much better as a coach, as a golfer, as a thinker, as, as someone who is more intentional about how they learn and what they say and what they think. Um, this is just, uh, just, a kind of a, I don't want to say life changing episode, but it, it just, it's going to, it's going to set me on a different path towards better learning, better thinking, better talking, better podcasting, better coaching. And I hope it does the same for you. That's, that's really what I hope that everyone out there listening is able to take what you heard and head down a better path. Like that's all we're trying to do here. So if you enjoyed this episode, you should share it with someone. The The last episode with Lou Stagner about neuroscience and this episode have been just amazing to me. They've just been so high quality. If you liked either, either of these episodes, share them with someone. And if you loved them, give it a review on Apple Podcasts. That's, that's how podcasts get discovered the best and the easiest and to the most people. Uh, is giving the podcast really a five-star review uh, on Apple Podcasts. That's how it gets discovered and more people can can learn about this show. Uh, and I would love it if people heard these episodes more often. And there's so many good episodes with interviews with people in the past. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I'm, I just feel really grateful that I've been able to get introduced to some of these people. Okay, this episode has been way too long. I will have links in the show notes for everything, for Dr. Pryor's stuff, for my stuff. Um, just go down there and look around. 
Okay, that's it. This has been The Mental Golf Show. I'm Josh Nichols. Catch you guys next time.